This is The Guardian. Hey, Laura Mafiotes here. The Uvalde, Texas school shooting has brought international attention yet again to America's problem with guns. America's culture of guns and gun ownership can be hard to understand from the outside. Today, we're playing you an episode of our global news podcast, Today in Focus, where you'll hear from someone with an inside perspective, a former gun industry executive who is now critical of gun ownership laws and the normalisation of gun violence. Here's Today in Focus presenter, Noshin Iqbal. On Tuesday, 19 children and two teachers were shot and killed in an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas. The alleged gunman opening fire off campus, then reportedly running into the school, barricading himself in a classroom where it's believed the shooting continued. The school... It's the 27th school shooting in America this year. Because it's happened again and again and again. I want to say that I was shocked and stunned, like I've seen from so many other reports. And I want to say, like so many other reports that I thought something was broken, but I really feel none of that. I didn't feel it when I heard the news. I feel like that I'm living in a system that was designed to function this way and it's giving the desired outcome. And so to me, to me, these are the natural outcomes of this system in America that we've established here. Ryan Bussey was a senior executive at a gun company for more than two decades. In that time, America's relationship with guns has warped beyond anything he could possibly have imagined. Columbine High in Littleton, Colorado, it has been a horror. In 1999, two students walked into Columbine High School in Colorado and opened fire. There were calls for gun reform, but the shootings kept coming. Right here in Newtown, Connecticut, the site today of a mass shooting and this time gunfire aimed at elementary school children. The National Rifle Association became one of the most powerful lobbying groups in America, and the weapons became more deadly. We stand with the people of Orlando who have endured a terrible attack on their city. The US government kept failing to tighten gun control. A heartbreaking day in Florida, and sadly an all too familiar one. 17 people are now confirmed dead we know at least three people still in critical condition. After police in schools, in synagogues, old, in malls, in clubs, in public parks, in people's homes, gun violence was normalized and gun sales kept booming. A white gunman has opened fire at a supermarket in Buffalo, New York, killing 10 people, most of them black. The FBI says the gas shooting at this time gunfire aimed at elementary school children. In 1992, three to four million guns were sold every year in the US. Today, almost two million guns are sold every month. What's driving America's obsession with firearms? From The Guardian, I'm Noshin Iqbal. Today in Focus, a gun company insider reveals how the industry radicalized America. Ryan, you grew up in Kansas in the American Midwest. Do you remember the first time you handled a gun? I know this is going to sound odd to maybe 
some of the listeners, but I really don't. I was so young, I don't remember. They were a healthy part of my life. In fact, they represented to me, uh, you know, fun, um, recreation, camaraderie, family, because I lived on, with my family on this rural ranch. We didn't have a lot of time to really partake in, in all of those things. And oftentimes when we did, guns were involved. I was sh- shooting or hunting with my dad or my brother or my grandfather. And so um, kind of from my earliest memories, uh, guns played this sort of central role in what I thought was some of the best parts of my culture. And so they were just a normal part of your childhood? They really were, yeah. You know, they weren't insignificant. And the responsibility that came along with them was never, ever trivialized or marginalized. So they were quite serious things. My father, his best friend, and his best friend's father were both killed when my dad was 16. So, you know, he was a a junior in high school. And, um, And his best friend was murdered with a pistol. And so deep in the recesses of my dad's upbringing, he, he really understood how serious um, guns could be and what, and what they could inflict on someone. So yes, they were parts of our lives and normal parts of our lives, but not unserious. Well, as somebody from Britain, and I'm sure you've heard this before, it can often be really difficult for us to get our head round this deep cultural connection that you and others in America have to guns. Could you try your best to explain or make it make sense to me? (laughs) Well, I may not accomplish that. I I get, I can can have this out-of-body experience. Imagine myself looking down on American gun culture and just from afar and just really scratching my head. So I don't don't blame you for asking the question. Um, It's it's so bifurcated now. that it's, it is difficult because for a large segment of the American gun-owning public, something akin to my experience is what they feel, is what their connection is. Like guns are now in a much more nefarious way in the United States, to so many of us growing up, they were representative of things, of much larger things in our life. I had a little lever action 22 rifle, so lever action rifle like the guns of the old west, you know. And when I was a boy, I would take that little lever action rimfire rifle and uh, hike over the hills. And it was really kind of my ticket to escapism. When you're carrying a gun, there is this certain freedom that it provides you. Like all of a sudden you become more of a master of your own destiny. I don't know, guns in American culture are so, they're like a conduit for so many other things, psychological and otherwise. And for me, those things were healthy. For America now, I fear that we have grown into this place where they are a conduit for something that is very, very unhealthy. Ryan, in the mid-90s, you got a marketing job at what was then quite a small gun manufacturer, which in time you would help grow into quite a big gun manufacturer called Kimber. Can you tell me a bit about what you did and the success that you had in your career? I was a young 25-year-old kid who was lucky or unlucky enough to stumble into a company that was frankly struggling and desperate. So I got what we joke as an entry-level executive job. (laughs) I became vice president of sales at a very young age because the company was so small 
you know, we had a, a sales force of two, but eventually, you know, just sort of ranch kid, hard work and some luck and maybe a few smarts. Um, we grew the company into what became sort of the Porsche BMW Jaguar, you know, sort of market niche of guns, a very high end, mm. very well-respected company. And with that brought a lot of cachet and influence to me. So I eventually won awards and was highly respected and everybody in the industry knew me. And so I got to play sort of this outsized influence role too. How many guns do you think you might have been personally responsible for selling? A couple million. What was the industry like back then? It was very small, first off. There wasn't a lot of pressure. There weren't publicly traded companies. There weren't billion-dollar companies. There weren't quarterly reports. Um, those all came, um, but that's not the way it was. Moreover, the industry was largely focused on the sort of defendable things that, that you may think of, um, shooting products, hunting, target shooting, skeet shooting, those sorts of things like mm -hmm. that really, those things really dominated the industry. And then the last thing I think that's very important is the industry operated under its own self-imposed rules of decency. And that meant that like tactical gear, these sorts of um, bulletproof vests and tactical guns that you all are seeing on the news now in these horrific events, those were not allowed to be displayed. These are rules that the industry imposed on itself and its own trade shows. Mm. You could see those, but you had to have law enforcement and military credentials. The industry leaders said, well, we don't want to market that stuff. It's irresponsible. We don't want pictures of it taken. Um, in other words, they knew full well that proliferating that sort of thing and into a complex democracy could lead to very volatile explosions. When Ryan looks at America's relationship with guns now, he doesn't recognize the industry he joined in 1995. For him, there were three definitive moments that accelerated the country to the path it is now on. The first was in April 1999. One by one, students returned to Columbine High and left bouquets of flowers in a park half a mile away. A little bit of pain, a little bit of everything at once. And it's deep, you know, but it's got to be strong. So parents, hug your kids. Pray to Pray that, be happy that you're with them. Kids, grab your friends, hold them tight, and never be mad at people because it could happen in a second that they'll be gone. It wasn't just the horror of Columbine that was a watershed moment, but the way the National Rifle Association, the powerful gun rights pressure group, decided to respond to it. Obviously, kids were tragically killed in that high school. And the NRA held meetings, internal meetings, which we now know about because they've been discovered um, by enterprising reporters, where they debated what to do, whether to appear to be conciliatory, whether to work with lawmakers to do something. Everybody knew how bad it looked, but the NRA purposely decided 
to basically give the middle finger to conciliation and say, we're going to double down. We're going to say, hell no, we're not going to allow gun owners to be blamed for this. To defeat the divisive forces that would take freedom away, I want to say those fighting words for everyone within the sound of my voice to hear and to heed, and especially for you, Mr. Gore. From my cold, dead hands. So this sort of hell no, we're not changing philosophy started in 1999. And the NRA worked hard to make sure that was pervasive through the industry and that everybody in the industry was with the NRA and nobody could ever speak out against it. And we know over time the NRA became so much more powerful and more effective at influencing policy in line with that kind of hell no attitude that you describe. Now, since the 90s, the NRA has spent over $60 million lobbying politicians to vote against gun controls and it coordinates its members of which the NRA claims there are 5 million, to apply more pressure against reform. After what happened at Columbine, there was a push to introduce new gun controls, and the big gun manufacturer, Smith & Wesson, reached an agreement with the government to add a number of safety features to its guns, including things like trigger locks. Also, they looked to improve regulation at gun shows. Now, Ryan, you personally led an effort to basically try and shut that down. You actually campaigned against Smith & Wesson introducing new safety measures. Can you tell me what happened? Yeah, I grew up, um, you know, in farm and ranch country as sort of this classically unthinking conservative kid. And and the industry was conservative. And so, you know, um, I liken it to being a young kid leading up to World War II where your country is attacked and you don't really think about it. You're just like, I I need to sign up for battle and defend this. And Mm. that's what I did. I jumped in and fought it and helped organize a boycott against Smith & Wesson. And eventually um, the CEO of Smith & Wesson, Ed Schultz, was fired. Smith & Wesson almost went out of business. Ryan, looking back, do you, how do you feel about your involvement in all that now? Do you have any regrets? Oh yeah, I've got a ton of regrets. The the biggest regret I have about that Smith & Wesson involvement is not so much that I helped derail uh, the agreement that Smith & Wesson had had crafted with the Clinton administration. There were some things that were probably helpful, and there were some things that were very, you know, just not well thought out. And so um, I, I don't really, I don't have as much regret about that as I do the way in which it set us on this current path. What happened was that the NRA figured out that, wow, we can control this. We can run companies out of business. If they step out of line, we can get CEOs fired. We can keep everybody marching in the same line. Look at this boycott. Look how well it worked. And if that sounds a lot like the modern politics of Trump about you know the way they intimidate everybody, keep everybody in the same line, nobody criticizes, there's no dissent. Well, yeah, that's, that's why it's exactly what it is. And I helped perfect that sort of political system, that trolling you know, intimidation, Um, that's what I regret. The second definitive moment for Ryan that shaped the modern gun industry came five years after Columbine. In 2004, 
Under President George W. Bush, Congress decided not to renew a ban on assault weapons. Soon after that, uh, 10 months after that, he signed a law in the United States called PLACA. And that's Protection on Lawful Commerce and Arms Act. And what that law does is provide a liability shield for firearms companies if they market irresponsibly and bad things are done with their guns. Essentially, it says gun companies cannot be sued when consumers do illegal things with their guns. And the subtext to that is even if the firearms company markets them, <laughs> hey, this is a sniper gun, and then somebody goes out and uses it as a sniper gun, gun companies can't be sued for that. That was like a frat party where, you know, booze and drugs were piped in. And then somebody said, just like, okay, I'll, I'll come back and check on you in a couple months. Just be mm -hmm. responsible. Well, they're, you know, like the gloves are off. An important part um, of understanding how America arrived here with so many assault weapons is to understand one of the things that happened after the removal of the assault weapons ban. As you had um, this proliferation, incredible explosion of companies all building essentially the same gun, the AR-15. It's called mil-spec, right? Because all of the the parts on any one AR-15 mostly fit on any other AR-15. So you had about 500 companies come into this market, all of them making, for all intents and purposes, the same gun. So the way to garner attention is, one way, is to develop ever more attention-grabbing model names, or aggressive marketing campaigns, or increased lethality for your gun. You see over time how just the capitalistic competition can drive this sort of situation that we have now, where we have a gun in the United States called the Urban Super Sniper. Let's talk about the rifle. This is a Wilson Combat Super Sniper. Real quick, let's just go from the front to back. Uh, basically, you've got a billet upper and lower. These things are absolutely gorgeous. Uh, the Wilson Combat Tactical Grade Match Barrel. We got a rifle length. That's a way to get attention. Um, deeply irresponsible, but it's a way to get attention. Um, and, and, and there are many, many things like this. And, and vast improvements, quote unquote, air quote improvements have been made to the guns, all of these guns, millions of them, to make them more lethal. Let's go ahead and pick a new target, put three rounds on it, and we'll save the rest of these for the long range. to make them shoot more accurately, to make them shoot faster, to make the recoil lower, to make them be more ergonomic, to make them faster or shorter or longer or whatever, um, all ways to get uh, market segment and drive sales. And that has led to um, the place where we are today. In fact, the, the shooter in Uvalde, Texas had a very specialized and highly modified AR-15. It was a $2,000 gun. The third moment for Ryan, and the one which propelled America to where we are now, was the arrival of Barack Obama. Specifically, how the gun rights movement responded to the country's first black president. As President Obama began to lead in the polls in 2007, um, and he was elected in 2008, you could really see this sort of polarization um, any hint that the NRA was in some way bipartisan 
went out the window. Are the president's kids more important than yours? Then why is he skeptical about putting armed security in our schools when his kids are protected by armed guards at their school? Gun owning, gun companies, gun selling became this sort of Republican right wing thing, and everybody else became the commie left wing gun haters. That, like this is the way it was positioned. Well, gun ownership now in the US it's it's become another polarized cultural issue. But I wondered throughout the two thousands, did you notice the increasing politicization of gun ownership, and how did you sort of process how things were changing? Oh yeah, I saw it. And how I processed it, I hated it. Um, I detested it. I had had a, a pretty, you know, powerful transition for me where I woke up and realized that I was not this unthinking conservative, and I I was a progressive inside the industry, and and here that the NRA is working against everything that I hold dear. So how did you square what was happening in the world around you, this shocking acceleration of gun violence in which a third of all the world's mass shootings were taking place in America and guns were getting more and more lethal? How did you square that with the job that you did? And did you start to question your place in it? Yes, I did question my place in it. And how I squared it was that I insisted that I worked for a company and sold products and marketed in ways that held to the old responsible and decent principles that we discussed early on from my childhood. So um, we didn't build AR-15s. We didn't sell polymer frame pistols. We didn't market in incendiary ways. Um, was that a rationalization? Perhaps. But I still I still believe in responsible gun ownership, and I still value the guns I have, and I still enjoy shooting with my boys. So, you know, to me, I'm kind of like, look, I, I got into this industry to do it this way, and this is the way it was, and I'm staying here. And if all you people are going to run off and do this irresponsible stuff, well, that's not me. Um, and so that's the way I rationalized it in my head. The way – what what also happened was, though, um, frankly, the, the polarization and radicalization pissed me off. And so I spent – much of my professional time trying to slow down, throw wrenches in the works of the NRA. I fought against the NRA every single chance I could. I, I wasn't perfect, um, but I, 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 I didn't go along to get along. I, I tried to hold to my principles and fight them at the same time. I got to comment on press stories. You know, I got to help behind the scenes with policy people from organizations that I supported and trusted called upon me for advice. It was difficult. It was a knife's edge. I worried about losing my job from the same troll army that I helped start, um, but I did it anyway. Was there a moment that you remember as a particular low point where you couldn't believe how far things had changed from when you first got your job? Nothing was as impactful as Sandy Hook, because nothing is worse than than dead kids in a grade school, nothing. An AR-15, the exact same AR-15 that was used in the Buffalo shooting 13 days ago. Um, when that gun was used, it was a Bushmaster XM-15 marketed with this very aggressive marketing campaign called the Get Your Man Card Back campaign. In other words, um, a young man could buy the this gun and then supposedly obtain his man card as if he did not have his man card prior to the purchase of the gun and then obtained his man card after the purchase of the gun. I don't think it's an accident that a very troubled 19-year-old kid, um, you know, ended up using that gun. But um, that really that really forced people in the industry to do some soul-searching. 
even kind of hardcore gun rights people, I think um, they thought about leaving or thought about changing or maybe even thought that change might happen. But the NRA has a particular way of um, taking that sort of angst and saying, look, the real patriotic thing to do is in these times of strife to double down on protecting your freedom. It's even more important now. Um, and within a week, most of the industry fell right in line behind the NRA and said, yes, Sandy Hook was horrible, but too bad. We're not doing anything. It's more important that we protect our freedoms. Did you have conversations with your family after what happened at Sandy Hook? Yeah. My two boys were the same age as those Sandy Hook kids. Um, they were very frightened to go to school. My wife and I were exceptionally frightened to drop them off at school. Ryan, can I just ask you, if you had decided there was something fundamentally wrong with the gun industry and that it was broken, why didn't you just leave as soon as you came to that conclusion? I mean, the company you work for, it wasn't involved in the worst parts of what was going on. You weren't selling assault rifles, but you were still part of that wider ecosystem, which is, as you said, selling millions of guns for years. Once you realised, did you not think, I just cannot have any part of this anymore? Well, it's easy to look back and um, think of it that way, but that's not the way that's not the way it actually happened. It was difficult for me to stay in, but I was stubborn. And I also realized that I was the only one fighting against it from the inside. And so that provided me a particular perch of influence. The way that you've explained it, the way that you've explained the culture and the heritage and the fact that, I mean, it sounds pretty reasonable this is something you had a really deep connection to, but as you've explained it as well, you, you were the only one in that industry taking this position saying, no, this is what gun ownership means to Americans. No, this is what this culture is supposed to be. And if you were the only one and you realised you're faced with a sea of opposition, did, did it not make you think, actually, oh no, they're the ones who's, who are right. This is what gun culture leads to. This is what the, what the ownership of all these rifles and the ability to buy them so easily means. It means what we now have. Yeah, I did come to that. I certainly feel that now. I knew there were other people in the industry that knew what, what, you know, parts of them knew what was happening was wrong. They had the same heritage as I did. I kept hoping I could influence them. I kept leaning on them trying to find allies. I kept asking them to stand up with me or to partake in these things. Um, most of them left, got fired, or just sort of fell in with the rest of the crowd because the money you know, the companies were growing so quickly that um, fortunes were being built. And um, so sadly, any over time, any hope of me finding allies or forming up a cadre of people who might have more influence than just me as a single person, that just slowly fell by the wayside and it became harder and harder and harder. As the industry became more extreme, my potential allies became less numerous. It just, it just all, it, 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 you know, just it, eventually it was just too much. Coming up, what happens when you leave the gun industry and try to fight it from the outside? So Ryan, eventually you left the industry in 2020 and you worked as an advisor for the Biden campaign. And now you're an advisor to Giffords, a gun safety organization. 
and you've written a book critiquing the gun industry. What's the reaction been to you speaking out? I'm very, very proud of the fact that Donald Trump Jr. saw fit to um, take a lot of time to label me as a useful idiot, which um, mm -hmm. is, is quite the moniker um, coming from him. Yeah, like I thought, well, gosh, that's like Michael Phelps, like very decorated Olympic swimmer. That's like Michael Phelps saying, gosh, you're a good swimmer, you know. So um, <laughs> I, t I, take, I take some pride in that. But were you not scared in either speaking out or in publishing it? I mean, few people are better positioned to know the extreme end of gun violence in the US and how that can play out. Were you not worried about your safety? Oh, hell yeah, we were scared to death um, and still are um, from time to time. My boys were going to school in a very, what we call red or right wing part of the United States in Northwestern Montana. So I was worried about how they would be treated um, would they be picked on? Would they be castigated? Would they be, how would their lives be impacted um, when news of the book leaked just in our local community? Um, I was worried about our physical safety. Would there, would there be snipers on the hill above our home? Um, like, I know that sounds crazy, but like crazy things happen in the United States. So we were, we were worried about that. Would we be trolled? Um, all of these things. Um, and what is heartening um, to me is that the reaction we anticipated, which is that it would be just incredibly vitriolic and voluminous and we wouldn't be able to hold it back, has actually been almost exactly the opposite. Um, every day I get up and I have these emails and direct messages, I just can't keep up with them, from reasonable people, a lot of them gun owners or families of gun owners across the country who say, guns are tearing apart our country, they're going to ruin our democracy, it's about time somebody said this, like all these messages. And so... I thought it would be 100 to 1 trolls to support, and it's been 100 to 1 support to trolls. So maybe there's a little hope, but at the same time, in those two years since you've quit the industry, we've seen gun violence ramp up dramatically, and there are so many horrible instances that we could list, reel off, leading up to this month what we saw in Buffalo, and then this devastating school shooting in Texas where we have 22 people, including 19 kids, many of them under 10 years old, who've died. From the story the numbers tell, things have gotten so much worse. 10 years ago, there was a mass shooting every 64 days. Now, it's two every day in the US. Yes, um, things have gotten worse. There are 285 million registered automobiles in the United States, uh, 285 million. Um, and if you drive any of our roads or visit any of our large cities, you'll note how many that actually is. It seems like a sea of vehicles. And we have 150 million more guns than that. <laughs> like that, mm -hmm. it's, it, it, and, and so to think that we're not going to have um, these sort of unhinged actors, especially after COVID, especially after um, four years of Trumpism where the country damn near came apart with racism and conspiracy theory and everything else. We're piping the, all of this into our society. And then we have these troubled, for the most part, teenage and young white men, primarily that's who commit these crimes. Mm -hmm. They're well-armed and it's easy for them to get arms. Um, I, I just don't know what else we would expect to happen. I, I, I mean... It would be shocking to me if these things were not happening. You do often hear people say, look, this time enough is enough, but then nothing changes. Why is this not being fixed? 
I think it's not being fixed because for some reason, and I'm not sure why, but for some reason, we both in the in the gun community and in the larger body politic, we have allowed a very loud, bombastic, vocal minority to set the course for everybody else. Politicians, especially on the right, believe that that gun owning that the gun owning public is monolithically behind the NRA, and that's not true. Um, I think it can change. I think we can knock those people off the stage. It is a minority, and we've we've got to figure out a way for the majority to rise back up. Um, I hate to say that these events like like uh, Buffalo and Uvalde could be an impetus, but they could. I, I mean, you if you were in America now, you could you could you could feel this sense of frustration, even from people who you might not think would would express it. So, um, I think there's going to be a tipping point moment, and I and I have to believe that. We've seen successive presidents urging for stronger gun control without any meaningful success. You know, we've seen attempts to pass federal laws, incredibly modest attempts at reform, which also failed to pass in Congress. Ryan, if somehow you could overcome that political gridlock and magic something into law, what sort of solutions would you hope to see? In a, in a complex diverse democracy like the United States, nothing is ever really solved. Um, what, it, what can happen is that we take actions that make things marginally better instead of taking actions that make things marginally worse, which we've been doing. So I hope that we just start making things better. Um, the first thing we can do is institute universal background checks, which means every gun purchase in the United States requires a background check. That's not the way it is right now. Most of them do, but a lot of them don't. Will that f- solve everything? No. Marginally, will it make things better? Yes. We need very strong red flag laws. Both of these shooters should should have been um, stopped. There were flags in their personal lives and in their social media lives and in their gun buying lives. Um, we should have stopped them. Would strong red flag laws stop everything? I don't know. Probably not. Will it stop some? I hope so. If it stops one of these horrific school shootings, well, then it, it's it's certainly worth it. Ryan, finally, do you ever have even the tiniest doubt about the right of Americans to own guns? Well, um, I think Americans do have the right to own guns, but I don't view... I think the right has adopted the Second Amendment as if it is this... as if it was a, a, a tablet from Moses or something that is literally immovable or unnegotiable. I value my Second Amendment right, I think it does exist. Do I think that it exists in a vacuum? No. Do I think that background checks limiting the way you can purchase guns is anti-Second Amendment? No. Do I think red flags are? No. Do I think laws outlawing armed intimidation are? No. In other words, I have a lot of doubts about the absolute nature of this right. Uh, In fact, I don't even have doubts. I know it's not absolute. The question is, what sensible restrictions will we place upon it so that it doesn't upend the entire democracy. Ryan, thank you so much. Thank you. That was Ryan Bussey and Today in Focus presenter Noshin Iqbal. This episode of Today in Focus was produced by Joshua Kelly and Ruth Abrahams. Sound design by Rudy Zagardlo. 
The executive producers of Today in Focus are Elizabeth Casson and Phil Maynard. Additional production on this episode by Alison Chan. I'm Laura Murphy-Oates and we'll be back with a new episode of Full Story tomorrow. <laughs>